welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host uh, for the next hour. We welcome you to uh, follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guest your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them live and certainly get back to you after the show. It's my uh, privilege to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and many other publications. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Happy Friday. We are here on Disrupt TV here with my co-host, Vala Afshar as well, one of the top chief digital evangelists for Salesforce, top follow on CIO and CMO, and recently interviewed everywhere in the Bay Area all in one full sweep on his awesome Twitter usage. Also definitely an author himself. So this is Friday. It's the best day of the week, the best hour of the week. Who do we have to kick it off today? It's a privilege for us to have one of the top CEOs in the tech industry joining us as our first guest. We have Fred Laleo, President and CEO of RO Technologies, um, an entrepreneur at heart. Fred founded his first company when he was 23. Ray, what were you and I doing at 23? I was doing an internship. I was unemployed. I don't know. You were a DJ. You were a DJ. Prior to launching RO, Fred was CEO of uh, Anaplan, which he grew from 20 people to 650 employees and over a billion dollar valuation. Before that, uh, Fred was an exec had executive positions at SAP, Business Objects, and ALG Software. You can follow Fred on Twitter at F-L-A-L-U-Y-A-U-X. Welcome back, Fred, to Disrupt TV. Thank you for having me. I want to know what Ray's drinking to have all this energy on a Friday. <laughs> Hey, I've just been in Vegas for four days. I should be dehydrated by now. now. Hey, I actually do have a question. Were you at the Bernard reunion that was going on this week? No, I was not. I was not. I couldn't make it, but I would have loved to do it. I've seen pictures all over the place. All right. Well, hey, welcome to the show. You are in one of the hottest spaces. Uh, and this is really that intersection between AI, the intersection between RPA, the intersection between business process, apps, and automation all in one spot with intelligence. So I wanna ask you a quick question because a lot of people get confused as to the space and I always get this question, and especially about the stuff that you're doing. How is cognitive automation different from RPA and process mining for that matter? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, all these categories are being formed, right? As, as we like to say, and they all have a, uh, a defined spot in what I call the new digital um, roadmap or landscape for, for large enterprises. So make it very simple. What we call cognitive automation is the automation and the augmentation of how decisions are made and executed in an enterprise. And I see more RPA as a way to automate how processes are being run in the enterprise. So pretty much one sits on top of the other. Um, and and they, are, they are very complementary, but they don't really necessarily overlap. What's confusing is the word cognitive, the word automation, the word augmentation that we're throwing everywhere, and I'm probably the first uh, culprit for that. But uh, <laughs> uh, the reality is we're really focusing on uh, moving from people doing the work supported by machines, and basically in this case computers, to computers doing the work controlled by people. 
right? So it's the automation, the augmentation of the decision-making process and, and bring it down to real life is, is how can I automate the, the process and, and the, the, what supports creating a promotion if I'm a CPG company, defining the forecast of my product. It's very, very uh, pragmatic and we're basically resolving some pretty old problems when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, for, for, for most businesses, unfortunately, important decisions are still made in the same way as it has been for decades. As you said, people supported by systems taking days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months to identify root cause and, and to really be able to speed up the, the process of decision making. Um, and now more... The, the biggest driver I see is not only speed, but also personalization in terms of having the contextual intelligence where decision-making is based on unique persona, unique company industry. Correct. Tell, tell us a little about your company and your approach to doing something that's frankly, in my opinion, critically important for not just companies to be relevant, but to compete and win. Yeah, I think it's, uh, well, I, I agree, of course, with you on that, that statement. And I think it's, it's, it's really a question of survival for a lot of them. I mean, the fundamental pillars that have, uh, that have enabled very large companies who make and ship and sell stuff, goods around the world to survive, are, are being shaken to the core. One of our clients was telling me the other day, look, what we basically do is we sell an X number of billions of dollars of water and soap. Another clients is water and water and sugar. That's the way they kind of like to to to, to you know summarize what they do. And they say, well, the fundamental core of our business is people buy our brands because they recognize them. And before you put shampoo on your kid's head or you feed them with some sparkling water, you want to make sure uh, that you recognize the brand and is attached to a level of quality. But the second reason why people buy from us is that wherever you go around the world, you can find the product. You go to the convenience store anywhere, you find the product. Two things, the world is moving from macro brands to micro brands, so that's shaking and they have to adjust very quickly and they've done that already. But the second big difference is that there are companies in the e-commerce world that are basically saying, you know what, you don't need to go to the store anymore. So now you've got multi-billion dollar businesses thinking, hey, if we don't change the way we, we think about this problem and if we don't do it very quickly, we're the next brick and mortar. We're the next ones to go. So. Uh, that, that premise here for us at ERA was, okay, we know that cognitive automation, it, it must, must happen. And, uh, and if you look back in history, if you look at uh, the different waves of, auto, of automation, it's just that uh, it's going to happen. There's no doubt there. Um, the, I think the train here has left the station. So what do we do about it? Well, we looked at uh, the stack and we said, well, how do Google do it? How does Google do it? How does LinkedIn do it? How does... Uh, all this internet scale company run complexity, volume, real-time computation yeah. at scale, at this massive scale. Well, we in the enterprise world are still struggling to put that much data into a system and push it to another system and give you a dashboard and all this stuff. So what we looked at, we said, what if we could leverage that internet scale technology in the enterprise to resolve the problem of real-time collaboration, real-time computation, managing for the first time both the level that you need to make decisions, the level uh, uh, of transaction that allows you to execute those decisions with the right level of complexity. Now, we're not seeking for complexity, but some decisions that you have to make are increasingly complex. I mentioned earlier uh, promotions, right? So if you're a CPG companies, you 
you know, deploy billions of dollars a year to incentivize your consumers to buy this product at this point in time on the shelves. Well, today consumers are walking around the aisles with a smartphone and they can balance promotions and they can, you know, the way, the speed at which the promotions have to be adjusted um, is increased dramatically. And if you don't have a digital operating system that allows you to do that by sucking in data coming from Nielsen, your point of sale data, your supply chain data, and coming up with that plan, uh, you can have the best modeling tool, you can have the best collaboration platform in the world. Human brains, even in network, cannot compete with the power of a well-run, you know, what we call skill. So, so the vision of ERA is to really enable that, that cognitive automation and we had to resolve a few, a few, tackle a few big problems uh, technically uh, along the way. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and really uh, the byproduct of this is what's interesting, right? You're talking about the future of decisions, right? Really helping people get there faster. Uh, now, the biggest problem we're seeing right now with AI is not the algorithms, it's not the connection points, it's not having the compute power, it's getting the right set of curated data, right? Again, these curated data sets are so hard to do uh, and so we're seeing lots of false positive and false negatives. Now, how do you address that um, with the type of work you're doing? I think I, I completely agree that that's the first problem. The first problem is getting the data, right? And, and, but there is another problem, which I'll, uh, I'll talk about as well. Um, so how do we do it? Well, we go down to the core. We go down to the bottom of the ocean, as we like to call it. And we build basically crawlers that are able to build a hot replica of every single transaction happening in a, in a, in a company across you know, the, the multitude of ERP systems and planning tools that they have. We bring all this data into a single instance of the client. And now when the data is in our system and maintained uh, in real time, the picture is maintained in real time, then we can work the data. We can augment it. We can derive from these billions of transactions we're gathering every day. We can derive the uh, the business metrics that allow you to think about your business, that allow you to understand what your business. So think about this mega model that has time series, which is and maintained over time dynamically. Uh, with one of our clients, we have 2,800 calls a day. We call SAP, we call Oracle, we call all these. Wow. Yeah, it's massive. Uh, so we start by crawling two or three years of historical data to have our baseline, and then we maintain that hard copy. And that's a pretty difficult thing to do, but we've deployed it at scale uh, with some of the largest companies in the world. So it's pretty, pretty cool. Um, and once you have that data, you're in like the data science heaven, because now I've got a normalized model, end-to-end <laughs> -end visibility in my enterprise with time series. And we have built the data science platform that allows us to deploy the algorithms. But that leads to the second part, where it's not just about data science, by the way, it's also about modeling. A lot of the decisions that you make don't require data science. They, they require just, uh, you know, complex models that, uh, uh, that mimic basically how you ad uh, address a specific problem. You have open orders with no matching inventory, what do you do? You have an increase in, uh, in, in, in forecast here, what do you do? Those are very simple problems, but we can automate that. The second problem that you find with, with, with uh, AI in the enterprise is how do I um, uh, connect the outcome of the uh, of the algorithms with the with the real life with the users. Yeah. I might operationalize the, uh, the 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 output of the algorithm. So here we had to build a whole new set of software we call the cognitive workbench. It's basically think about it as an inbox. You have your inbox where you send me an email, and you have your inbox where AI is telling you what to do. 
and you have multiple skills running. You have a forecasting skill, you have a demand planning skill, you have a, a promotion skills. And it's saying, hey, Ray, I recommend that you increase your forecast for this product by 1.2% next month. And you say, why? You can answer. And then you can say, okay, Ara, please do it. So the point is, in this single platform, you can have multiple skills running in real time and you can operationalize the, uh, the, the, the skills and, and, and we learn from the interaction that you'll have with the system in real time. So it's pretty cool. That's wild. Um, Fred, last week we had um, uh, Tasha Keeney, who's the uh, uh, principal analyst covering autonomous vehicles for ARK Invest. And um, she had an interview two weeks ago with Elon Musk. And she asked uh, Elon, when are we going to be at a point where you can get in your car and take a nap? and go from A to B, so level four, level five autonomous. Yeah. And Elon's response was that, the, that um, we're feature complete. The code is there. Uh, for the next two, three, four years, we just have to convince uh, the governing bodies that this is safe. And we'll be just tweaking the algorithm, but for the most part, we're feature complete, is what he said. So my question to you as the Elon Musk of autonomous enterprise, how close are we to- I'll take that anytime. <laughs> How close are we to, uh, to being feature complete? Because you know, you're combining AI with um, real-time understanding of business performance so that this, uh, this augmented intelligence can help um, you know, a fluid decision-making process across multiple lines of business in real time. So can you give us a sense, take us to the future. When, when do we have the autonomous enterprise? Or even a use case if you have one. Yeah, uh, it's, it's mad, guys. Um, when we launched, it's mad. It's happening now. Uh, yeah. Literally, literally, like we, when we talked to, you know, two years back, I told you it would take two years, and we're now two years in. And where we were in our thinking process about this is around really augmentation. So as I said, you know, ERA provides you with real-time recommendations. You get into your workbench. You can say accept, reject. I learn from every single interaction so I can build very nice analytics and intelligence around, look, this is how people interact with the skills in real time. And our, our go-to-market, our approach with our pioneer customers, some of the largest companies in the world was like, look, we're not going to automate all these decisions. We're going to actually build that interactions and learn from the users. And the more we went, uh, the more we heard no, actually, guys, we need to go all in on the algorithms. We need to go all in on the automation. Um, and, and I'll tell you why. Some of the problems, I'm going to stick to the same example of promotion because I think it's really telling. Uh, the complexity and the speed at which those decisions have to be made is such that basically even the best uh, people in charge of building those promotion plans are overwhelmed. They cannot do it. You talked about our circles analysis earlier. Well, you look at the work that we do and the compute power that is required to identify a, um, a problem in your supply chain and, and define what the consequences are. You know, you could not do it even if you throw a thousand humans on the best planning tool, on the best modeling with the best CPUs. It just wouldn't be possible. So um, what our clients are saying is like, can we move? As soon as they feel like the algorithms and the skills are mature enough, can we move auto, uh, to the full automation and free our people from this super painful, frustrating 
uh, uh, tasks, basically, where we're asking very smart people to repeat day after day the resolution of the problems. And, and fundamentally, if you think about what we did is, it is this big transactional bedrock of ERPs. I talked to a, one of the largest uh, F&B companies in the world. They have 86 different ERPs. But the problem is the same when you've consolidated two or, two or three, which we have some clients as well. And on top of this, there is a massive pyramid made of people, process, tools, data, collaboration platform. And if you're an information worker inside that pyramid, your value is as much your understanding of the market and how to do your job than, than how to actually work the pyramid, if you see what I mean. Like, I know who to call when there is this instance. I know which systems to get to. And, and that is 50% of people's time. We get, oh, yeah. we get rid of that at once. We can automate all of that and then augment the decision-making process, right? You think people as work at twofold. Outside in, I'm looking at the market, I'm understanding how to make the right planning decision, and inside out, which is how do, or inside, how do I make it work inside my company? We automate the, the second part, we augment the first part. So the, the, the impact is, is absolutely massive, and, and we have now, I'm not gonna tell you that it's massively deployed yet, but we do have some processes running 100% autonomously, and we have the validation from the clients that if you look at demand forecasting, you ask me for an example, that the products that are being forecasted with ERA, uh, in some cases have reached what's called perfect forecast, which I didn't think was possible. Wow. So, no, but it's, it's math. It's wow. not complicated. It's not sci-fi. It's simple math, and, and you can actually get there. So the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. Yeah. was famously said. But I mean, I'm, so I, just a quick follow-up question. It, it just feels, when I listen to you, that companies that take advantage of your technology are going to be relevant and grow, and the companies that don't are going to die. So is it a human right? Is it our obligation as businesses to companies' access to the cognitive algorithms and innovation that companies like yourself develop? How do we, how do we make sure that we don't continue to expand the digital divide where companies just don't understand the power of this augmented intelligence automation? And unfortunately, they're not going to be around for long. Wow, that's a, that's a heavy loaded question here. I have a lot of thoughts <laughs> going in my mind, including, including Darwinism, but uh, maybe we don't go there. It's digital Darwinism, guys. Come on. Yeah, you know, digital yeah. Darwinism. Great. We need to coin this one, digital Darwinism. But to be <laughs> sure, that's a good one. I, I beat you on that one. So, <laughs> so, um, no, look, a few constructive points on that. The first one is, um, unlike the last generations of, of innovation in the enterprise world that required massive investment and that required massive amount, very long you know, uh, implementation time, this is really fast. So if you haven't started yet and you want to jump in, for us to crawl, uh, one of the largest instances of, 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 of uh, leading ERP in the world, you know, three years of historical data, took us 54 hours, and then we were done, and the data is ready to go. So, so the, the barrier to entry yeah. is very low, so it's okay if you're starting a bit late. The second that's the thing that surprised me, you know, with, with a bit of experience, is that we are literally talking about this at the, truly at the sea level. This is, a, this is an executive conversation with some of the largest companies in the world. And in my entire career, 
I've never seen that. It's, it feels like okay, people are fully aware. And what's happening is I was talking to with, with, a, with a, one of our guys yesterday, coming back from a meeting, saying, look, this company was all on this journey for collaboration, improving collaboration, improving visibility. And already, after one meeting, they're going like, well, why are we doing this? Why do we care about visibility, transparency, and collaboration? We need to think automation. And, and it's, it's a, you know, when we launched that thing, um, this concept of self-driving enterprise and cognitive automation was July 2017. And um, I mean, Ray, you were, you were purviewed to that process. And I was we, in you. I was with you at the Bulgari Hotel. But, but everybody was very cynical going like, oh, where is he going now? It's completely crazy. You were not. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> the reality today is everybody is talking about this. And, and the feedback we got from those execs was not, wow, you guys are so smart. The feedback we got from those execs were like, where the heck have you been? <laughs> We've been waiting for that for a long time. So it's a long answer, but I think it's two part. The first one is it's common sense and it's really where the heck have you been? And the second part is it, it, the, 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 the adoption is very fast and you can turn that into value in a very fast uh, uh, way. So, so I think you'll see that uh, uh, it'll be faster than you. Keep educating and inspiring. That's your, your role model CEO. Really appreciate it. We are here with Fred Laluya, the Elon Musk of Cognitive Automation, supported <laughs> by Vala, President and CEO at Era Technologies. You can follow him at F-L-A-L-U-Y-A-U-X. Last on episode 89 in January 2018. Hey, thanks for being on the show. Happy Friday. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Thank you so much. You're terrific. You're terrific. This is, this, is, you know, this is why Friday is my favorite part of the week, because we get exceptionally bright CEOs, and they're painting a vision that business leaders need to, need to really carefully study. Um, you don't have to be uh, great to, to start, but you have to start to be great. <laughs> and you're ignoring AI uh, and automation, again, in my humble opinion, you're not going to be around. So speaking of leadership, speaking of future of work, speaking of building relevance and influence. Our next guest is Dixon Tang, author and keynote speaker and influencer. Dixon uh, has helped people and organizations get creative towards future of work and business so that they can unlock ideas and opportunities in new products and services and processes and new business model innovation. He's an author of a book titled Leadership for the Future of Work. Nine ways to build career edge over robots with human creativity. Every business of every size in every industry should read this book. Dixon also runs a corporate training company working with leaders and executives from some of the largest, most well-known brands in the world. He's a fantastic uh, follow on Twitter at I-M-D-I-C-K-S-O-N, capital letter T. Welcome, Dixon, to Disrupt TV. Hey, hi, Vala. Hi, Ray. Uh, thanks for having me here. Great to be here. Happy Friday, everyone. It's Saturday in Singapore. Thanks for being a great sport. It's 2.20 in the morning. So, hey, thanks for being on the show. I saw you last at the uh, Marina Bay Sands or hang out in Singapore and the uh, Tech HR conference. Yep. That was kind of great. Uh, your book is really seminal because we just talked about cognitive automation. We talked about where AI is going, but you advocate for something really important, which is how do we actually beat the robots with creativity? So let's talk about this book here, right here. Congratulations on your book, Leadership for Future of Work, Nine Ways to Build Career Edge Over Robots with Humans. Why did you write this book? 
Wow, right, that's a great question. Um, let me answer it in two manner. Firstly, I really want to write a book since I was a child, like uh, maybe six years old, seven years old, because my mom brought me to libraries, bookshop in Hong Kong, and I wish, oh, one day, it would be cool if my book is there. Right? Yeah. So, so that's just like a childhood dream. And why a book on creativity? Wow, actually there's a story behind that. You want to hear? Yes, yeah. let's go for it. <laughs> well, that happens when I was at 10 years old. Um, I was studying in a primary five in, in, sec, uh, in, in a school in Hong Kong. So it's something like uh, the fifth grade in the US system, I think, like around 10 years old. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a mathematic class and I was, I consider myself a very hardworking student. So I drew all the math questions. I memorized the multiplication table, nine times one is nine, nine times two is 18, da, 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 da. And then one day, my math teacher, um, he asked a question to everybody in the class. The question is, it takes nine minutes to cook one hot boy egg in the kitchen. Nine minutes to cook one hot boy egg. And now we are cooking seven hot boy eggs. So how many minutes it take to cook seven hot boy eggs? Hmm. I immediately up my hand. <laughs> and I shout out, 63 minutes, sir, 63 minutes. Because nine minutes to cook one egg and now we are cooking seven eggs. <laughs> wow. Nine minutes, nine minutes, nine minutes. <laughs> you know what happened? The, 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 the teacher said, hey, uh, Dixon, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, hands down. Um, in this case, the correct answer should be... Nine minutes. <laughs> nine minutes, because we are cooking everything in one go. <laughs> wow. I was speechless almost for two minutes. I, I really don't know how to respond. And, but, but thinking about it, that's good, because that's the epiphany of creativity. And I know there's something called creativity in this world. And uh, now, fast forward. Uh, to year 2016, right? Year 2016. I was reading an article by one of the create, creativity guys in an advertising agency. So, so he's like a global creative director. And he, he wrote something on, uh, on the paper and said, we are all born creative, but somehow we educated creativity out of us at school. Yeah. Yeah. We are all born creative. We just got it educated out of us at school. Well, the moment I saw that, my childhood incident, the hot boy egg incident immediately <laughs> came to picture. And then, and then I told myself, wow, I have to do something about it. Because at that moment, I'm also reading some articles from the World Economic Forum. They're saying that creativity is one of the fastest growing skill in yeah. demand right now. And I told myself, Dixon, you've got to do something. Sure. Uh, the future needs creativity. Well, but the school that, does not teach us. That so. is an awesome quote. I remember it's uh, Tom Kai Meng, uh, the uh, creative uh, worldwide creative officer Ogilvy. Uh, he's oh, the yeah, co-chairman. Right, right. That is yeah. Tom Kai Meng, and I yeah, think, I think so. that is a he's, that is a famous that is an awesome quote. It is, it is. <laughs> Especially in Asia, when you're just beaten out of you. <laughs> yeah, so, so when, I, when I saw this one, okay, my, my childhood uh, incident, this like hardware yeah. incident in my primary school, that immediately came well, back. Hopefully, to hopefully you're not allergic to eggs. I mean, it's a great story, but uh, and uh, we all have those stories where we recognize the importance of creativity. And you're right, World Economic Forum 
list the most important skills for 2020 and creativity, critical thinking, negotiating, and, and so on and so forth is uh, among the top 10. But at the same time, the World Economic Forum projects that 50% of jobs are susceptible to automation by 2025. We have uh, Dr. Kai-Fu Lee, who wrote the book, AI Superpowers, who believes in a 60-minute interview that 40% of jobs are, including you know, what you call white-collar jobs, are susceptible to automation in less than a decade. So what are some of the nine ways uh, because I often feel Ray is going to replace me with a robot soon uh, on the truck TV. <laughs> so, it's a creative dude. It's a creative. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> what, are, what, are, what are some ways where, you know, I can continue to be on the truck TV and not have, uh, not be replaced by a robot? <laughs> well, okay. Um, it's, that's, a, that's a great question. And, um, well, I, the way the way I see it is, um, a lot of people a lot of people think that oh, um, I'm not a creative person because I'm not in the advertising, I'm not in the design, I'm not in the um, in the graphic design industry. Uh, but actually, not true. Okay, I believe that everyone is born creative, uh, but somehow we just need to activate the creativity within us. Okay, the way I see it is um, there are actually three ways that you can activate your creativity. Um, I call it the three I, uh, which is featured um, in my book. Um, briefly, um, the three I are number one is the individual mindset. So what does that mean is if you're running a company, if you're running your team, what you need to do is you need to encourage them encourage your team members to embrace this creative individual mindset. So what does that mean is yeah, it just, that means you have to, you have to keep saying, why not? Keep saying, why not? Instead of saying, oh, cannot, can't be done. You just need to encourage people to say, why not? And why not we do things in a new way? So that's the first I, uh, individual mindset. The second I is what I call infrastructure. By saying infrastructure, meaning that um, your company culture, the policies, the environment, the culture, and so and so forth. So. Um, for some, for company who want to build a creative workforce, who want to build a creative ha uh, human capital, um, they need to make sure that they build a conducive uh, environment. Uh, that means a pro-creativity environment. Okay, um, encourage people to share experience, and even to celebrate failure. Okay, so that is really important because. Um, in Asian countries contact, okay, failure is something not good, but actually we should all embrace failure because the more you fail, the faster you go to success, right? So that's the second I, I call it the infrastructure. And the third I, um, of course, is really important is about ideas. Right? It is about empowering your team to come up with ideas using different methodology to generate ideas as well as to process through all these ideas because I believe that the more ideas you generate, um, the more revenue you will get because you will get more product revenue, services revenue, or even like optimize your work process. Right? So, so in, in summary, these are the three, three ways, uh, individual mindset, infrastructure, ideas. Terrific. Sure. Makes sense. Makes total sense. Wow. So, hey, part of this thing, I remember uh, there's one chapter, and I was just flipping back through in there, chapter four, um, how to lead effectively in uncertainty. And I thought it was interesting because you were spending some time talking about VUCA, and uh, we'll explain the acronym later. But the point being is, this is actually one of the big challenges as in, in this era of disruption. 
uh, and especially what's happening with the speed uh, that's going on with AI. Talk about VUCA and talk a little bit about leadership there. Sure. Um, in the traditional sense, uh, a leader supposed to know everything because you're running a team. <laughs> you are managing people, you're leading people, people expect you to know everything. But now in this VUCA world, um, there's no way a leader can know everything, man. So, so there's a fundamental shift in terms of leadership. You need to shift from, a, okay, I know it all to uh, something, to uh, someone like uh, work in progress, a leader work in progress. So um, the key things in the future of leadership is about speed trumps perfection. I always believe that speed trumps per perfection. That means, by the time you get all the information to make a decision, you're gonna miss out the opportunity. So you have to take action. Okay, so you have to um, start right, to be great. You don't need to be great to get started, right? exactly like what Vala mentioned just, just now. So yeah, you, you just need to keep moving, keep going, uh, get going and like a, build a version one, version two, 2.1, 2.2, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So speed really trumps perfection. So, so don't wait. Just get going. Sure, that's terrific. Terrific advice. You know, when when you speak to um, coaches in the athletic arena, um, most will say you can't teach speed. There's certain capabilities, how high you jump, how fast you run, that um, you know some are gifted and born, and and others are not. Now, when it comes to business and leadership. Um, I believe that, you know, you can teach leadership. Um, it's not something that you're born with and, and you know, uh, you either have it or you don't. In my 20 years of managing, uh, having the privilege of managing people, I felt that I saw growth and I saw leadership skills developed in individuals post-university. Um, and uh, so my question to you is, do you believe that leadership can be taught? And if so, when you're working with a client, what are some of the foundational elements that you want them to, to, to develop, uh, like the empathy muscle, the communication muscle, uh, the ability to listen muscle, um, and humility, and so on and so forth? What are the maybe three pillars that you think are must-have skills to be a good leader when, when we think about future of work? Sure. Okay. You um, you raise a very good point. Uh, typically, leadership is what I call the experiential knowledge. That means you 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 gain it like through experience, like through working, through uh, leading a team, through real project. It's it's not something um, typically um, you can learn in a classroom. Okay, uh, but having having said that, um, if you can read some like leadership books, uh, get some uh, fundamental knowledge about leadership. Um, that would be, I mean, that would be useful. Um, the the way I see it in, in, in the future is that uh, no matter which industry you are in, um, if you want to be a great leader, uh, basically you need to pay attention on three things. Okay, so number one is you need to lead yourself in a very positive manner because nowadays change is the constant, and sometimes you you are lost in the middle of all these like uh, mega trends. And sometimes you feel frustrated and uh, sometimes you just feel 
completely lost right in, in the business world so 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 you need to stay motivated you need to like lead yourself positively so that's number one tip and then secondly is when you lead your team right, when you lead your team you 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 need to give them some space to make error to make mistakes because without mistake they can't grow right? so you need to give them some leeway give them some space and thirdly when you when you lead the organization okay you you need to make sure that your organization is heeding the mega trend right? there's no point for you to lead an organization which is against the mega trend so these are the three fundamental um, advice I wish I will share with you guys is like no matter which industry you are in right so basically you want to be a good leader you need to make sure that you lead yourself effectively uh, yeah. lead the team yeah. and also make sure that you, you lead the organization with the trend fly with the trend yeah, I mean, we do tend to glamorize leadership. I mean, have you ever lost a customer? Have you ever fired someone? Have you ever given <laughs> someone difficult feedback without causing resentment? Have you ever been in a room where people expect you to have the answer and you're completely lost? If you haven't felt those experiences, I'm telling you, it's, it's easy to read a book and talk about it, but you, like you said, it, it's something you have to experience. Exactly. So that's why um, that's why when I work with the when I work with the corporate people as well as I work with like uh, college uh, college students, yeah. I always encourage them to have a board based education. So that means if you are college students, um, instead of just studying your major subject, go and take other elective classes. Um, um, volunteer in a, in a community right? do something different, be different, do, do something different so that you can get some exposure and um, so that you are not um, like a living uh, within the academic. Right? So, so that's my advice to the youngsters, to the to the students. On the other hand, to the corporate people, I always encourage them to look outside of the industry. Right? So, for example, if you are if you are in the construction uh, construction industry, right? so you you should look into the, the logistic, uh, or maybe you if you're in the technology, you're in the three D printing, you need to look outside uh, because uh, for ex i give you an example right uh, 3d printing a lot of people think that oh it's related to the construction industry related to the manufacturing industry but actually the um, the rise of 3d technology actually disrupt the supply chain because yeah. there's no separation between the material production and the material usage right so it actually disrupts the supply chain so the point here I try to make is no matter which industry you're in, you always need to pay attention outside of industry because nowadays there's a lot of like crossover. There's a lot of like disruption actually happening outside in. So yeah, yeah. so that's, that's my advice. Well, hey, Dixon, one last final message that you'd like to share with everybody uh, in preparing themselves for the future. What's your one last piece of advice? Two words, be creative. Be creative. Be creative. We will lead with that. All right, we are here live in middle of the night in Singapore here. So that Dixon Tang, author and speaker. You can follow him at I'm Dixon T. I M D I C K S O N T. You can get his book on Amazon: Leadership, Future, Work, Career, and Creativity. So you can check it out. Published December thirtieth, twenty seventeen. Thanks for being on the show today, and happy Friday, Saturday, for where you are. Thank you, Dixon. You were terrific. Congratulations on your book. Thank you, Vala. Thank you, Ray. Thanks for having Thank me you, here. Yes. Yeah, it's so it's so important to, uh, you know, he talked about infrastructure. You know, uh, people are not afraid of uh, failure; they're afraid of blame. So having a safe space 
to innovate and to be creative, I think is critically important. So your surroundings has a lot to do with your ability to, uh, to, to explore and be creative. Our final guest is uh, first ballot Hall of Fame inductee of Disrupt TV guest. <laughs> because I've learned from her so much. We have Heather Clancy, an award-winning business journalist specializing in transformative technology and innovation and translating tech speak into business benefits. Boy, every CIO needs to be watching. Uh, <laughs> Heather's articles have appeared in Entrepreneur, Fortune, New York Times, and many more uh, major publications. She's the co-author of Niche Down, How to Become Legendary by Being Different, uh, which Heather co-authored with Chris Lockheed. Uh, as editorial director of Green Biz, Heather covers the role of technology in enabling clean energy, sustainable business strategy, and low carbon economy. She's an awesome follow on Twitter at Green Tech Lady, G-R-E-E-N-T-E-C-H-L-A-D-Y. Welcome back, Heather, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Vala. I appreciate it. I love the creative use of finger pointing. <laughs> on, the, on the gallery here. No, it was perfect. It was perfect in the gallery view. That's it depends where you are on the Brady Bunch screen. <laughs> I know. Does this work? Hey, it worked for me. <laughs> Sorry, guys. So, welcome back. How are you doing? Happy thank Friday. You. Hi, Nikki, for having me back. I'm fine. Thank you. The Robins are back in New Jersey, and I'm happy that it's spring. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, we're looking at all the stuff that's going on. Notice that you wrote a couple interesting articles. And one that really stuck out to me with this Google and Taiwan. What's up with clean tech? I mean, okay. we're talking about some very interesting pieces here. Okay, so specifically, you're talking about the international uh, energy procurement deal that they made in Taiwan for solar power, which, which uh, was is interesting for a number of different reasons. Um, First, a little bit back a backdrop. Google, for those of you in the audience who are not following this as closely as I do, I'm obsessed with it, is one of the biggest um, investors in clean energy uh, from a corporate standpoint. So they're making a lot of deals to contract for solar and wind power in order to run their operations. So in the cases where the, the electricity isn't actually on the grid where they're operating, they're making these sort of uh, virtual deals that, that cover their, their energy usage. And, and it's, it's quite fascinating um, the way they're using also AI to help sort of make sure that, that they're using the clean power whenever possible and, and sort of trans, transform, transferring actually their supply from place to place. The Taiwan deal is interesting for several different reasons. First of all, a lot of their deals so far have been in the United States. And that's been because the, the, the regulatory infrastructure here has been you know, in certain places at least, been more conducive to, to uh, getting those deals done. And actually in the places where it's not very, very easy to get it done, Google has done a lot, a fine job of working directly with utilities in order to convince them to invest in solar or wind or whatever. Um, places like Taiwan don't have any kind of deals of this nature, that this is a sort of a first of, a, of its kind deal. Um, so Google not only had to figure out um, the regulatory infrastructure. They had to go in and convince people over a period of months and years um, that this was a good uh, thing to support. They had to go in and really talk to the, the national level government. They also had to figure out how, um, from a land standpoint, they could get this, this done. And so what makes this deal doubly interesting is that they're, they're putting the solar panels like over fields, like wh where there's water. So it's, it's just a different usage. You know, people think, oh my God, 
what can you do with the land? Um, and in places like Taiwan, there's, there isn't, a, you know, it's, it's challenging. Um, so where, where they've wanted to put the panels, it's been hard to do so. And so they're, they're taking a, a look at putting them over uh, di like different marshes and, and things like rice paddies and, and um, agricultural farms. So it's very cool for those two reasons. Wow, that's wonderful. I'm from, my parents are from Taiwan. That's why it's really caught up my attention there. So. Well, you know, if you look at Apple, they've done a lot of deals on, um, actually in Singapore, um, they've done lots of deals on rooftops. So, so the, the, tech, the tech sector's in there as well. Um, and, and Apple, I, have to do, I, I do have to say, in China, where it is also very, very hard to do this, uh, Apple has been bending over backwards to help its suppliers. So like it's going in to do this on behalf of their, their major supply chain partners, um, to help, help get the, the policies in place and then help finance them. So, so, so cool. you, you mentioned Google and Apple, you know, mm -hmm. number, I don't know, number two, three biggest companies in the world. And you recently wrote about a uh, big picture view of big companies in terms of the climate treatment. <laughs> and you said as of mid-February, <laughs> only 109 members of the Fortune 500, mm -hmm. uh, which, you, you know, you identified as iconic list of largest U.S. companies were on board with at least one of the seven iconic programs supported by businesses dedicated mm -hmm. in-house gas emissions. So, yeah. you know, we talked about two big companies. Um, where are we in terms of, uh, you know, commitments to sustainability development goals, which the UN identified in 2015, mm -hmm. where we're going to be by 2030? And how are big companies, you know, really getting involved to achieving these, these goals? Yeah, so for those, uh, again, I, I find myself in the, in the definition mode here on this one, because yeah. I don't, you know, if I would just, were to say sustainable development goals to my friends and family, I bet they would be like, what are you talking about? Um, but for, the, for those, those who haven't followed this, again, as obsessively as I do, the United Nations has put in place these um, basically 17 sort of principles for, for guiding development in the future. These, they, they, were, they were adopted in 2015. It's things like um, number three is ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all ages. Um, there is a big focus on gender equality, achieving gender equality and, and, and really mm -hmm. enriching the lives of, of women and girls and clean energy, ensuring access to clean, modern energy. Um, so that's what these, 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 uh, these goals mean. They're called sometimes the global goals, and there's a lot of them. Um, and, and they're really focused on what countries need to do. However, the money is going to come from businesses, big companies, and so forth. And what, what a number of these organizations have figured out is that many of their corporate sustainability goals actually align with many of these sustainable development goals. So this provides a way of a company working more closely with federal national actors and state actors, if you will, and actors meaning the policy, you know, the, the, the governments around the world in order to actually maybe get more of a um, uh, traction for their own programs. And so we've seen a lot of big companies, um, I've seen a lot of big companies sort of commit to this at a very high level. I'll just name a, uh, two that are popping into my head just right, right on this, at this moment. Mars, right? So the big food company, Mars, and then MasterCard, for example. Um, and I'll, just, I'll, 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 I'll use a MasterCard example just to kind of give you a thumbnail of that, but I think I want to talk a little bit more deeply about what Mars is doing because it kind of uh, maps into another sort of thing that I'm following is how do you justify these investments? How do you prove return to your C-suite? The, Mar the Ma Ma MasterCard example is, um, <laughs> I, I mean, 
let's be clear and honest. These are going to be kind of self-serving, right? So MasterCard <laughs> is very, I mean, they are. I mean, and, they, and are, they, they are, they are. That's why I'm laughing. They have, to, they have to serve the interests of the company. And so what MasterCard is keyed in on a bunch of these things. Um, so they're going in and to, to various, uh, you know, I think one of their, there's aligns with the women, um, the, the gender equality thing. So they're, they've come up with programs to help, uh, entrepreneurs and emerging economies uh, finance themselves, you know, with various services, sort of the microfinancing thing that, that, um, that movement that has been in place. So MasterCard has, has kind of pinned themselves to want, that's one of the ones they pin themselves. There's a lot, I mean, if you go and look on the websites of any big company, they will say they're doing this. Now, where it gets trickier is <laughs> where, what are they actually doing, right? They say they're doing this. They say that they like to do this but what are they actually pulling off? And um, I, I love, you know, Mars is, I have I, a couple of reasons for liking Mars. I've always been obsessed with them because my dad used to work for them um, <laughs> a million years ago, but they have this plan called sustainable in a generation. And they basically, um, they've sort of pinned their whole corporate strategy to um, addressing certain areas of the sustainable development goals. And they have programs in place um, that, that are very clearly aligned with them. There's a, um, something that they have, uh, I don't know what, I don't remember the exact name of the program, but it's basically focused on smallholder farmers. Um, yeah. So in other words, pardon me? Yeah, no, I remember seeing that, yes. Yeah, so I think it's called the Livelihoods Fund and they might have, um, you know, but basically what their, their philosophy is that if we go into these small communities where there are lots of smallholder farmers, which, which, which grow the things that we need for our products, like rice and cocoa and all sorts of manners of commodities. If we teach them to do this more sustainably, it will serve our interests, right? It will serve our interests. It will serve their interests because they may also find a better economic opportunity by, um, by man, you know, by growing their 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 food in a more in their crops in a more sustainable way. Um, now, okay, so how do you it, this this kind of fund? It's very tricky. Like, how do you measure that? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's it's one of those hard things. I mean, it's pretty easy to see cash equals what's the return. You know, it's very mm -hmm. easy for um, uh, you know, I shouldn't say it's very easy. It's very straightforward for traditional managers to be able to go into their C-suite and say, I want to do this. Here's the return. This is the time frame. Boom. Well, it's harder to go in and say, hi, I want to invest in these farmers. And this is what I think the return will be. And this, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, but what, but what Mars has done is they've been able to, um, their, their team has been really smart. So that what they've done is said, we can link this to a more sustainable and stable supply. We can, we can better, um, we can put long-term contracts in place that are good for us where we know what the supply will be. It's more sustainable and we can get this, you know, we can pay this price. Right. Um, and we, we will have less risk. We will have less risk if we work with these suppliers versus buying our, our crops just sort of more in a commodity marketplace where mm -hmm. we don't know what these suppliers are doing. Are they going to be flooded? Will they be able to grow in the future? We don't know. So volatility, reputation, it, it helps make a more, for a more stable supply chain. So the sustainability team at Mars has been able to sort of turn those into metrics of return.
Amazing. So I, you know, I'm being very long-winded, <laughs> but that's just one really great example of how you turn an intangible into a tangible thing that the C-suite could probably really appreciate. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we're seeing a lot of stuff in the Livelihoods Fund and uh, both the Carbon Fund and the Family Sharing, Family Farming Fund, I think, is, is the two big ones that they have. Yeah. So uh, yeah. kind of interesting stuff. Yeah. The, I think the whole premise when they started was it was the fact that, you know, the farmers weren't even, even they were farming, but they couldn't even feed themselves. So right. it was pretty interesting to see how that evolved to, to right. what we're talking about. And it actually, yeah, I oh, mean, it's very hard to do this at a, at a community level because, you know, I mean, the perception is, hi I'm, this, hi, I'm this big bad company coming in and I'm trying to influence you. And there's a lot of suspicion. So they have to, I mean, it's, it's very delicate and tricky for them to, to do stuff like this. Absolutely. Okay. Now I want to get to something you wrote today. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, you know, <laughs> how does 5G wireless and come together? How does that work? <laughs> it's kind of interesting to see that. So I'm a little what, bit surprised. What's that, the, the Sacramento thing? Yeah, the Sacramento 5G wireless mobility innovation and a dose of climate right, reality. Right, right, right. So if you think the about- The podcast okay. was kind of interesting with uh, yeah. Joe and Katie, so. Right, so the, the specific thing that you're talking about is um, what they're doing in Sacramento around 5G investments. So the, the chief innovation officer there, Lewis Stewart, is, is uh, in there, I think he's been there a few years, couple of, at least a couple of years now. Um, but he's, he's focused on driving the strategy for autonomous vehicles, um, for other sort of transportation investments within the city, like electric vehicles and so forth. And he looks at 5G as, as integral for this for a number of reasons. First of all, because you need the data, right? And uh, you need data in real time. And so they believe that if they create this sort of test bed um, by create, putting that network in place, that, that they can be an attractive place for some of these pilots, you know? So they're, they're putting these, they're, what they're trying to do is make it a attractive place to test these these services and b you know make it you know maybe get some money out of it right mm -hmm. so it's it makes it makes them more attractive as a, as a place of doing that um you know i love what they're thinking about in in, in sacramento with avs because because i think if when i see a autonomous vehicle on this on this podcast most people probably immediately think passenger vehicle right. and oh, that I'm is thinking. not what they're thinking about. They're thinking mm -hmm. about shuttles that yeah. take senior citizens to the hot, you know, mm -hmm. to their doctor's appointments or people, um, the shuttles that go in, small shuttles that go into communities that are low income and can get these people to jobs and so mm -hmm. forth. And, and how do you do that? And how do you re-divert a, a vehicle from one place to another in real time? And that's why the 5G investment is so important. Uh, and, and, but by the way, that's just passengers. Deliveries, is yeah. a whole nother thing. Like as you're trying to manage congestion within a city and, and cut down on the number of cars and so forth that are on the roads, you need it to be able to divert and maybe send someone to a depot in this area of town where people can then walk or, or take an e-scooter yeah. or, or whatever and get their packages. So Very that's- yeah. yeah, they refer to it making a, I believe a mobility hub is what they want yeah. when it's turning. Yeah. yeah. Rail. And I think, I mean, the thing about it is, as we know, the rail investments are so hard to justify. Yeah. I mean, you guys are in, you're living it with, um, and yeah. it seems to be hard and everywhere, you know, rail, rail system, people don't want to invest in it. So I think that's short term, you know, especially in urban climates, this sure. urban yeah. environments, this is. Sure. We're waiting for the boring company to help us out. <laughs> but, uh, Ray, um, uh, I have a question for you. Can we use the word badass on Disrupt TV? Oh. 
Is that okay, Ray? We've got no FCC limitations. I think we'll be okay. Okay, all right. Because Heather wrote about 25 badass women shaking off the corporate uh, climate movement. And in your piece, you reference uh, a 16-year-old, uh, Greta Thunberg, who was just nominated for uh, Pulitzer Prize. I'm sorry, Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize for, yeah. for peace. Uh, and it was a movement where you know we're gonna we're gonna skip one day of school to bring attention to something that's frankly, according to her, is being ignored um, and, and needs to be a, a, a house on fire type emergency. I believe is yeah. her analogy. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about these incredible women uh, who are um, who are really uh, you know uh, creating this uh, revolution and visibility towards climate movement. So I have it. I just will in full disclosure will admit that I actually had like way more than 25. It was really hard to actually cut this one back. But, but to, um, to talk about Greta specifically, um, she's just an incredible young woman. Yeah. Who, and if I, I th my, every time I tell someone that the kids are skipping school, they're like, what, the whole day? I'm like, no, it's actually two hours in the afternoon, every Friday. And, um, but, and, and actually, she inspired this movement. I mean, I, you probably remember last week, um, you know, every, all around the world, there were Amazing. kids that were um, taking, you know, doing the same thing, the protests yeah. all over the place. But, yeah. you know, I think <laughs> what I love about her is, number one, that she just is so persistent. Yeah. Um, she was, you know, she just, she does her thing. She gets out there. She talks. She's really pushing herself out of her comfort zone. She, I believe she has Asperger's. Um, yeah. And she is really hard for her to talk to people. And she's, I mean, that, and that to me even speaks more about how important this is for her, right, right, um, but, and, and, and when she went, she's been at Davos, um, she also spoke at the COP, yeah. the climate talks last fall, and she got there by, like, train, and, I mean, she doesn't, she won't fly, she, she lives it, she lives it, right, so the other people, I mean, there's a lot of uh, people within organizations that I, that I was recognizing, um, so, um, for example, Danone, um, Deanna Bratter, she, she helped, them earn the, the largest B Corp certification of any company around the world. So, and that means that basically they are um, for the benefit of the public and for society as well as shareholders and employees. Um, and they have their, their processes built around that. Um, the woman that, that negotiated the, the Paris Agreement, uh, Christiana Figueres, um, right. you know, it, uh, Lisa Jackson with Apple. I mean, just incredible, incredible investments in, in create and create back to the creativity. How creative is it that Apple is financing this stuff for their supply chain? I mean, and, and it believe me, it takes a lot to get deals done in China um, with, with clean energy. So it, anyway, so that's just three of the, tw the 25 people that I, that well, I wrote about. Ray and I are hoping that someday you'll do a badass men doing video podcasts. Well, you know what I do want to do is a badass allies, right? Because I, I, I've always been struggling with, I know, I've always struggled with lists of women because I'm yeah. partly because I'm a woman and I always feel like, hey, we're just, everyone does their thing. You know, we should all judge everyone by their own merits. Um, but I do, feel, I, I do feel like um, I would love to do an allies list, like men who are particular allies of, of women and helping women get you know, find their place in the I world. I think your list was terrific. I think it's really important to recognize people that are putting their, uh, you know, political capital on the line and, and effort and, and, and energy towards things that are bigger than themselves, bigger than their companies, and frankly, will help their children and grandchildren live in a better world. So, so 
keep making those lists. I think it's important to recognize people that are doing great work. And sure, working on our list. If you ever had a list, you'd be at the top of the list. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about lists more and green tech, we're here with Heather Clancy, editor director of Green Biz Group, one of our awesome guests on a Friday. So thanks for being here. If you can follow her on Twitter at Green Tech Lady, catch her blog, catch her podcast, and more importantly, catch her in the green. So hey, <laughs> thanks a lot for being on the show. Happy Friday. I don't it's know what that means, but thank you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. You're the best. Yeah, she's Episode one. Episode 141. This has been great, man. We've gone from cognitive apps to being creative around AI and to making it all sustainable on one episode. It's it's what a privilege, Ray. Think about it. You know, we're getting close to 350 unique guests, and every Friday we sit here and we learn from real trailblazers, real change agents, and people that are making a difference. And next week is no exception. We have Anna Terman, Division CIO at Catholic Health Initiatives. We have Tom Stanford, Vice President and CIO at Halifax Health. And we have David Chow, who was formerly one of the top CIOs in healthcare, and now he's Vice President Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. So clearly the theme is healthcare innovation, and how we can leverage emerging technologies to improve quality of healthcare. And it's gonna be an amazing show, must watch. I was gonna say television, but we're not television. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, those stuff are really cool, Ray. <laughs> we gotta get back to this, we gotta get back to this. Yeah. No, but hey, it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV show. Catch us 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, and catch Bala all over. So, welcome to Disrupt TV. Thanks for watching the show.